Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, let's start at the end. It's quite a hectic week, and the next week uh, ahead of us could actually be even more hectic. And the reason is because uh, for the first time since this government was formed just over a year ago, a year and a few days, the government celebrated uh, a year uh, since its uh, formation uh, a few days ago. Um, and basically, in that time, they faced many threats, many pitfalls, uh, many objections, much uh, heated opposition. Um, but uh, it has been suggested uh, that next Wednesday could be the first uh, extremely serious threat uh, to the continuation of this government. Uh, if um, it's to be believed, there is a very good chance that next Wednesday there will be a law to disperse the Knesset, which will be uh, put forward by the opposition. Uh, if a law is put forward by the opposition, it has to pass the vote to even then get to the stage where it then has to go through uh, three votes, uh, because if it's a coalition law, then it just, uh, if it passes the ministerial committee uh, on legislation, then it just needs the three readings. Uh, if it's an opposition bill, then it needs uh, a fourth. Um, and there is talk, and there seems to be a relatively good chance uh, that next week there will be a law to disperse the Knesset. Um, and uh, according uh, to uh, many commentators. Um, the opposition is relatively confident, uh, I say relatively, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit, that they will have the numbers to pass it. Again, you just need a majority. As we know, at this point in time, officially, um, the government is, and the opposition is 60-60, but as we know, there's quite a few rebels in there. Um, there's uh, Michal uh, Biton, of the Blue and White Party. I'm going to start from the least threatening to the most uh, of Blue and White, who's very upset about some transportation and to a lesser extent agricultural reforms that are being touted by this government and has vowed not to vote for this government except for on a law to disperse it and uh, the law of Judea and Samaria that we talked about last week. Um, but he has said that he will not vote for the government apart from that. And today he turned up in sandals and shorts to the Knesset uh, to send a message that uh, you know the business is not as usual. I'm here, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not really here. And he didn't uh, vote, to the best of uh, my knowledge, on any of the laws today. I think there are about ten of them. Uh, the coalition won about eight of them, but two of the more important ones, one could argue, were lost by the coalition. Um, and I can talk about those in a little bit. Then you have uh, probably the second. Uh, least concerning, but still pretty concerning threat, and that's from uh, Ghanaim of the Ram Party. As we've spoke about before, the Ram Party has been relatively split in two, with those who, who favour more moderate stance, led by the chairman, Mansour Abbas, 
um, who wants to continue the coalition, not almost at all costs, but with high costs. And he's shown again this week that he really does want this coalition to continue. Um, a member of Knesset Ghanaim is from the other side, who's more hawkish. He also has more aspirations in the municipal elections that are taking place next uh, year. And he certainly uh, leads the opposing camp within Ram to Mansour Abbas. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there is talk, and actually there's more than talk, there's action to try and persuade uh, Naim to give up his seat in the Knesset. As we know, uh, you can't force a, a member of Knesset to give up their seat, as we've seen from other defectors or rebels. Um, but if they give it up, then the next person on the list of that particular party comes into the Knesset. Now, the next party on the Ram list is, again, uh, someone very much from the hawkish wing, who is an opponent of Abbas's position uh, in the government. Uh, but um, obviously, not coincidentally, um, he resigned that position this week, apparently not officially because he has to come to the Knesset, but he sent a letter uh, expressing his intention to do so. Now, why is that important? As I said, again, he would have been next in line. I can't remember the exact, exact names here, so please excuse me. But apparently the person after him in the list is a person who is more in line with Mansour Abbas's camp. So if, he, if um, Abbas uh, manages to convince Ghanaim to resign, then he could get someone who would then sit back very nicely and vote with the coalition far more comfortably than he has at the moment. Uh, moving on, uh, then we have Meretz Zawabi. That's a, a relatively longer term threat. Uh, she left the government, then she came back to the government. Now she's not voting with the government. She said that she's voting just according to her conscience. She claims that uh, Foreign Minister Lapid, uh, or alternate Prime Minister Lapid, leader of the Eshatid party, who managed to bring her back to the government, promised her she could vote according to her conscience. Um, Lapid has denied that, saying, absolutely not. We can't have M every MK voting according to their conscience on, uh, on any issue that they like, because then there's no coalition opposition. Um, there has to be some sort of whip. There has to be some sort of... Um, uh, coalition issues which are voted on, etc. Uh, it does not seem uh, that she will resign her position. Uh, that's something that uh, Merit's party chairman and pretty much everyone else in Merit's would love to see. And she is either not voting at all or voting with the opposition as she did today. She's a real problem for them. Um, so I don't think, I think she's extremely unlikely to give up her position, but it's something which... Uh, everyone is calling for. The biggest problem, it seems at this point, is Nir Orbach, um, who, as we know from a, a few weeks ago, when they were talking about Edith Silman leaving Yamina, there was a uh, trioka of MKs in Yamina who apparently were sitting together, deciding to work together. And if they were going to leave, to, uh, leave they were going to leave together. And there should be no surprises between them. That was Nir Orbach. Um, uh, 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 Kara and Ayelet Shaked. Uh, it does seem that Likud have, uh, will not allow all three to come to the Likud because on top of Silman, that means they have to give four uh, promises out. And obviously one can imagine for the leadership of the party to give up four uh, positions to rebels from other parties is not palatable for many of those uh, already in the party. So that's unlikely. So. It seems that they could have identified the most useful one and the 
probably the least problematic from their point of view. There's a history with Shaked and the Netanyahu's, um, and Orbach is seen as probably the most likely to move, but also importantly, he is head of the Knesset committee. Now, if a law, um, for example, if they wanted to uh, treat uh, Silman, Edith Silman, as a, uh, an official rebel and push her out of the Yamina party, as they did to Amichai Shikli in the past, that would have to go uh, through his committee. Uh, as we know from a few weeks ago, there were threats by Edith Silman to um, basically a sort of tell-all of what Nir Obach has done, apparently according to uh, reports that she has information on some financial irregularities when he led the Amina party or the Jewish Home Party, which turned into the Amina party, um, and there was that threat. So, you know, it, it does seem that uh, there's no coincidences in Israeli politics, or let's say the majority of the time, not coincidences. So it does seem that Nir Obach is the one most likely to quit. He's already said that he will quit the coalition if the law for Judea and Samaria that we talked about the last few weeks is not passed. Uh, he did not give a timeline, which is very important, because if he would have given it a week, then, then it puts a lot more pressure. The fact that he did not put a timeline, in theory at least, means that the government could at least last to the end of the month, which means, as we've discussed before, that we could well see this government uh, lasting till September uh, through the summer recess, through the Jewish holidays in September and even into October. Uh, the Likud seemed to be confident that uh, by next Wednesday he will have officially left. Um, uh, there is talk of an agreement that he will uh, uh, receive the second um, uh, uh, you know, uh, slot um, in post slot because Likud does have primaries, um, but the chairman of the party has a certain amount of slots on their list for the next Knesset, and there's talk that he'll get it and even a ministerial position. He wants the education ministry, it remains to be seen. Uh, he's obviously denied it, first of all, because it would be illegal to sign such an agreement uh, as an MK, uh, standing MK. Um, but it does seem that there's some uh, smoke to this fire. There are those, I'm not sure how much credence there is, who claim that this is a ploy by uh, Bennett to, uh, they say that Bennett and Orbach are working in concert together uh, to lead Likud into uh, launching this, um, this process to try and disperse the Knesset, because if it fails at any stage throughout any of its readings, the opposition cannot bring that forward again for six months. And that would be a major achievement for the, for the government. So there are those who fear that this is a ploy by Bennett. I'm not sure I wouldn't put my money on that. Um, I think that there is a good chance that Orbach is getting fed up of this government. He did hold four meetings over a 24-hour period with Bennett. No press release came out of it, as opposed to previous meetings. Um, it does seem that uh, Orbach is getting fed up. The pressure on him from the opposition is a lot. And if he was to be given a, a, um, a, a preferred uh, seat on the list next time, I think uh, there's a good chance he'll leave. The fact is some other senior members of the coalition, like uh, uh, Israel Beitainu, finance minister, um, Avito Lehman wrote a very long Facebook post, basically uh, laying out the case for Nir Orbach not to trust Netanyahu, uh, someone who knows him very well and has worked very well. Uh, Liebman uh, basically gave a whole laundry list of times where Netanyahu promised someone something and didn't deliver. And there's quite a number of those uh, looking back into history. Now, the big question then uh, comes up is, 
who exactly wants early elections. Now, there is this theory that uh, Netanyahu does not want early elections at this point because he's not quite ready for them. Uh, this theory basically shows, um, and, and this part is certainly true, that uh, whenever there's polls every month or every couple of months, uh, the Likud and the right-wing bloc as a whole, the right-wing religious bloc, which is the opposition today, has been uh, steadily growing. You know, it, it, uh, today it's 53. Uh, if you include Silman, it's actually 54. Um, but it's now up to 60, according to most polls recently. It moved, you know, steadily one more seat, another couple of seats, another couple of seats. Um, but it still stands at 60. And that's uh, if... Uh, uh, at least one of the parties in the current coalition does not pass the threshold. Most, most frequently, that is Gidon Saar's uh, new hope, Tikva uh, Khadasha. Uh, their party doesn't seem to pass the threshold. So if that doesn't pass the threshold, uh, then it does seem that Netanyahu's bloc will gain from that. At the moment, they're at 60. That, as we know, is still not enough to form a government, at least at the beginning. Um, so there is this theory that Netanyahu is being given a last chance by his allies in the Likud, if he were to go to elections and not be able to form a government one more time, that is the end of it. Uh, because of his legal problems, because uh, people around him would be fed up, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not one who espouses that belief. I, I, I truly believe that if Netanyahu could fail this government tomorrow, he would. And I believe that he would leave uh, trying to form a government till after elections. Uh, when he would have a strong hand, when again, as we've seen in the past, he would go further than pretty much any other politician uh, to bring in others, no matter what, give them whatever they wanted, as long as he would return to Balfour, the seat of the prime ministership. Uh, so I personally believe that he is uh, wanting to uh, fell this government as soon as possible. I don't think he needs the time to grow anymore. Uh, because also once you get into a campaign period, uh, not to say polls are completely, uh, you know, previous polls are completely thrown out, but they're less meaningful. Once we get into a campaign period, uh, it's, it, you know, things can move around quite a lot. And he's a good campaigner. And I, I, I think that he would believe that he'd be able to get the extra one or two seats that would be necessary. And if not, to pull uh, enough seats from uh, those perhaps not nat most naturally in his camp, uh, to make sure that he would get the next uh, uh, the next uh, uh, chance of, uh, uh, to lead the government. I also don't believe that necessarily could, even though there is a want and even maybe a need, some would argue, I don't believe that there is still yet the power to, uh, to unseat him within the liquid. He's still very powerful. Uh, he's made sure to become even more powerful. He's uh, certainly powerful with the base. Um, even though, you know, some of the other big names in the Likud are certainly fed up with him. Um, but I believe that he's still able to uh, outmaneuver them. Uh, I personally think that the greatest threat to him, if he wasn't able to form a government again, would probably be from the ultra-Orthodox parties, most notably the United Torah Judaism Party, who have been relatively reticent uh, in recent months to say 100% unequivocally they would go with Netanyahu all the time. Uh, Arya Deri of Shas, uh, you know, stands very loyally uh, behind Netanyahu, and I believe is far more, far less likely to want to cause problems. But I, I, I believe that the ultra-Orthodox parties are very unhappy about being in the opposition. They've lost out, probably lost out more than any other community from this government. 
So I think that they would do everything to make sure that they would not continue to sit in the opposition, that they'd be back in the government, that they would have access to some of the fundings, to some of the budgets, to some of the positions that they've become used to for the last uh, couple of decades. So I think if Netanyahu wasn't able to form the next government, I think that's where the pressure uh, would uh, begin. And that would probably be his greatest opposition, because I still think that there's no one person in the Likud uh, below Netanyahu who could rally all the other major forces in the Likud to take on Netanyahu. They all believe, whether it's uh, uh, Yisrael Katz, whether it's Nir Barkat, whether it's Miri Regev, whether it's Yuli Edelstein, they all believe that they are the heir apparent. They believe that they're the ones who could and should run the Likud after Netanyahu. And they don't particularly like some of the other competitors. So I think that, uh, you know, divide and conquer that Netanyahu has been very successful at uh, over the years remains. So I don't think he'd necessarily be threatened yet from within Likud. So I don't necessarily believe uh, uh, and concur with this idea that Netanyahu does not want early elections. I believe he does want early elections. And I, and I think that he trusts his campaign skills to get over the line. And if not, to be able to then use his negotiation skills to bring across uh, the necessary votes to get over that 61 to be able to form the next government. Um, and we could well be seeing the first stage in that process happen a week today. Um, and with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on this or any other issues. All right, thank you so much. Uh, so the first question is, uh, has there been as many rebels in past governments or is this unique to the government and this government and its instability? Um, no, because this is a unique government. First of all, from the very beginning, it had 61 seats. Uh, so obviously that allows every single MK to think, OK, I can make a name for myself or I can push an issue which is important for me ideologically or politically. Um, you know, there has been one or two other governments with a very slim majority, uh, but certainly not with such diverse ideologies. This has certainly been the most, uh, I would say even argue by far, the most diverse ideological government in the history of the state of Israel. Uh, which means that there's always going to be disagreements. You're going to have left-wing parties voting for right-wing issues. And we've seen it less, but certainly uh, the other way around. And that means, excuse me, you're going to have a certain amount of discontent uh, within the ranks voting for things which you don't necessarily agree or believe in. Uh, and the fact that it's been a very shaky coalition from the beginning uh, means that this has been uh, a government base susceptible to any uh, rebel and as I've said we've, we've seen a number so no I, I don't remember any other government there, there were there were individuals uh, there was Haz, uh, what's his name Hazan who was uh, in the Kud when they only had 61 uh, he became a bit of a problem for them uh, but it was one person and he was kind of dealt with um, but here yeah we have them coming from the left and we have them coming from the right so it's, it's really, you know, every day there seems to be a different person who wants to make a name, and especially when everybody knows that we're getting closer and closer to elections. So each MK is starting to think to themselves, uh, how can I make a name? What's the issues important to me that I can go campaign on uh, in the lead up to the next elections? 
Thank you. Stuart brought us, uh, if there should be a successful vote of no confidence or to dissolve the Knesset next week, how might this affect President Biden's scheduled visit to Israel next month? And Eric follows up, would this visit still occur? Well, first of all, those are two different things. Uh, no confidence, as we said, is highly unlikely because you need an alternate government. You need uh, 61 votes. And don't forget, we still have the joint Arab list in the opposition. So that's, I think, at this point in time, extremely unlikely. Um, but the, mo the more likely option, as, as we've discussed, is the dispersal of Knesset law. Um, they, the, the government is trying to put a, a, a good face on it and say that it won't uh, affect, you know, no matter what happens, uh, President Biden is expected to come. And the fact that he put out the official itinerary of his Middle Eastern trip uh, in the last couple of days, knowing that, you know, and I'm sure President Biden and his team are appraised of everything that's going on. Uh, in Israeli politics for the fact that they put out the itinerary even in the middle of this you know political maelstrom uh is 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 testament to the fact that he's going to come and and uh yeah Lapid basically said that today one one issue I didn't mention in my opening which is very important is depending who brings down the government if it is going to be near Orbach that means uh that if there is a dispersal of Knesset a successful uh, uh vote to disperse the Knesset and Nir Orbach is the one who uh, crosses um, the aisle to vote for it, that means Yair Lapid immediately becomes prime minister until there is a new government, not just until elections, until there's a new government, which means he would then be prime minister for the President Biden trip. If it is someone from the left, if it's basically someone outside uh, Gidon Saar's party or Natalie Bennett's party themselves, then basically uh, Natalie Bennett will stay on until there's a new government. Um, so that's a very, very important issue also to look out for. Uh, if it is going to be New Year Orbach, which it seems like it's the most likely who would vote against the government. Again, uh, we're not talking about someone who would remain passive and just not vote or not turn up, but someone who would actively vote against the uh, Knesset according to the coalition agreement. You need two from uh, either side, and we already have Edith Silman. Would it be one and Neil Orbach, if that is the case, that would be two, which would mean that the prime ministership would uh, pass over to um, uh, Yair Lapid. Again, we're talking about tight timelines because at the end of this month, we go on a Knesset recess. So you'd have to get these laws uh, through relatively quickly. It could be they'll get the first reading through um, and then they'll go on recess, which means that basically everything will be uh, in sort of deep freeze until uh, until after the, the Jewish holidays, after the summer recess. So it, it remains to be seen. That's why there's talk of the opposition really trying to hurry and get it on the, uh, the Knesset agenda uh, next Wednesday. So depending how that goes, depending on who would vote, how they would vote, we could have uh, you know at least one or two options of who's going to be prime minister for uh, President Biden's trip. But I do believe that President Biden's going to come pretty much uh, whatever, because he knows what he's stepping into. And it's an important trip that he's coming to the region and he certainly won't, I, I don't see uh, this meaning that he'll avoid Israel. Thank you. Eric asks, do you think if this government falls, Netanyahu would allow Abbas in his government? I mean, he, he would have allowed him up until now if it wasn't for Smotrich. You know, he did enter negotiations. He did offer Abbas pretty much everything that Bennett eventually offered him. Some argue more, some argue a bit less. Uh, their offers weren't, whatever the truth is, 
Uh, obviously, Netanyahu's people are now trying to spin that there was never serious negotiations and it was just uh, for posturing or, you know, just uh, uh, any number of reasons. But it's clear that offers were made, whether they were verbal or more. Uh, that's up to debate exactly what the offers entailed. It's again up to debate, but the two, the uh, Bennett and Netanyahu offered Abbas around uh, the same uh, things, um, the same issues. Uh, the problem that Netanyahu had was uh, Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party basically said that he will uh, he will veto it. He will not join such a government. So Netanyahu could not then uh, bring Abbas in. So uh, he would have to jettison Smotrich in some way. Um, but I, I, the Religious Zionist Party apparently is just growing higher and higher. And there's there's a real chance that it may even be the third or fourth biggest party in the Knesset, whereas Ram is pretty much staying uh, as is with its four members. So I don't see a possibility, if everything goes the way it should, that uh, that Netanyahu will again try and bring in Mansour Abbas because of the probable strength of uh, Smotrich after the next elections. Understood. Thank you. Stephen Orlow asks, have the cases against Netanyahu become all but moot? All, all that what? Moot. All that Non-relevant. Yeah. No, the, the, the cases are still there. They're still ongoing. Uh, they're very important because, again, if you want to go into the whole sort of what does Netanyahu want, uh, if at some point he wants a plea deal, uh, obviously to come from a position of strength to be back in Balfour, to be the prime minister, to then take a plea deal, he'll probably get a better offer because it would obviously entail him giving up his, his position. At the moment, he has very little to give up. He's a member of Knesset and leader of the opposition. Um, so there, uh, as far as that goes, um, it's very important, uh, again, that for those who believe that Netanyahu is interested in going for a plea deal. At the moment, the case, especially one of you know, the, the, the more important witnesses against him has certainly thrown the case more towards him. Uh, it will remain to be seen how significant that is. Don't forget there are three cases and there are dozens of uh, witnesses who can be brought. But at the moment, the case is going relatively well uh, for the Netanyahu team. So uh, the political and legal clocks and the political and legal uh, channels are overlapping and are relevant. Uh, depending on how Netanyahu does in, in either sphere, can have a knock-on effect on the other. Thank you. Joy Wolf asks, what is the view of uh, President Biden's intention to support setting up a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem? Uh, can you ask the question again? What is the significance of that? Was that the question? What is the view uh, of Israelis to President what? Biden's intention to support setting up a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem? Well, that's been a, an, an ongoing sort of disagreement since the beginning of the government. Uh, as we know, uh, President Biden in his election campaign did talk about uh, returning the, uh, the consulate that deals with the Palestinians to Jerusalem. Um, it does need the OK of the Israeli government and pretty much everyone in the government, apart from the far left, is against that happening. They do believe in a united Jerusalem under total Israeli sovereignty and having a consulate that deals with the Palestinians within that sovereignty is seen an infringement of that sovereignty. So uh, there has been pushback pretty much from most members of the coalition. Uh, so the Americans haven't pushed it any further, or at least they haven't uh, tried to make it a bigger deal 
than it is because that would cause a major point of friction. The Palestinians are pushing very hard on that. They believe for, the, for them that is a major, major issue as well as returning the PLO office uh, in Washington. Uh, those are very important issues for them. Uh, the uh, American administration at this point knows that the Israelis are not going to uh, agree. So they're not uh, pushing at the moment. Perhaps there could be other opportunities for the Americans in the future, perhaps a quid pro quo for something. Uh, but at the moment, uh, it's not moving forward. Thank you. Jacob Hirschman asked uh, in regards to your or any other questions. Uh, do you believe that the damage to the runways of the Damascus airport presumably by Israel, will result in retaliation by Syria against Israel? Well, not necessarily from the Syrians, because the Syrians don't have much of a military capability uh, uh, towards Israel. Um, what problems could come out of this? First of all, it's already caused a certain amount of a diplomatic spat with Russia, as we know Russia very much, uh, you know, in control in, in Syria. And, you know, there is a uh, sort of a, a de- uh, conflagration agreement between Israel and Russia, where they let each other know when they're going to take to the skies, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no danger of Israelis taking down a Russian um, uh, aircraft or, 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 you know, forces on the ground. Um, so there could be some diplomatic fallout. The, um, the Israeli envoy in Moscow was called in for a, 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 a you know, sort of a, a telling off or asked for an explanation. Um, the Iranians certainly uh, could, um, you know, take some retaliation. But as we know, the, the, the Iranians don't necessarily need any more uh, fodder for retaliation. You know, Israel has been attributed to taking out some very senior um, Revolutionary Guards officials and, and others involved in the nuclear weapons program and terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. So the Iranians are desperate for retaliation. And, uh, for those who've been following what's going on in Turkey, uh, uh, Israel has very much warned its citizens not to go to Turkey uh, because there are very real visceral threats to the point where uh, there are reports where Israelis were picked up in the market and told not to go to, back to their hotels. This is what was reported in the news because there was an Iranian hit squad waiting for them in the hotel. They had to leave their bags and they were taken by a bulletproof bus to the airport and returned home. Uh, so it does seem that there's a very visceral uh, threat. The Turks are unhappy about the fact that Iran are potentially using its soil to take retaliation against uh, Israelis, and they've let Tehran know about that. But they're also unhappy about Israel uh, because a lot of their incoming tourism, with obviously the tourist dollars, um, are, are you know come from Israel, and they're unhappy about the fact that Israel is warning its citizens not to come and even try to pull its citizens out of the country. But obviously Israel has to has a responsibility to its citizens. So Iran certainly has the motivation even before this to retaliate. At the moment, it hasn't successfully done anything. Uh, the Russians, it seems like, will, will play the role, but it probably won't escalate beyond that. But the Syrians are not really a threat militarily. So that's not where the threat's going to come from. Thank you. All right. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Michael Mandel Mandelbaum discussing how the past foreshadows future U.S. Middle East policies. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.